September 14th is going to be a great day here at White Oak. Tommy mentioned it in his announcements. That's our Good News Today lectureship, our one-day lectureship, half a day, really, on Restoration Reflections. Three speakers will be participating, great men of God who have an excellent background in the restoration history. Brother Rod Rutherford, Brother Wesley Simons, Brother Scott Hart from down in Beaufort, Georgia. In fact, Scott maintains a website on the restoration. And uh, these men are very well qualified to speak on a subject that is vitally, vitally important in every generation. And that is the important subject of restoration. This morning, as we continue the series on the New Testament Christian, I want to whet your appetite for that lectureship, if I can by considering this subject. The New Testament Christian understands restoration. The New Testament Christian understands restoration. You know, we've been involved in a series on the New Testament Christian. We began with what is a Christian, and then we've looked at some other uh, lessons. The New Testament uh, Christian knows Jesus Christ, the object of his uh, faith. The New Testament Christian uh, contends for the faith. That was Brother Paul Sain's very fine lecture at the MSOP lectureship in 2013. We based one lesson on that very fine lecture. And then David Sain's uh, uh, lecture as well. And um, Larry Acuff uh, and his very excellent lecture. So we're basing these lessons on the, the lectureship theme of the Memphis School of Preaching Lectures uh, this past March. Not all of those lessons, but uh, many of them. And this one on the Restoration was, was a lecture by Matthew Martin, and he did a splendid job. I didn't hear the lecture, but I have obviously uh, read it, and I'm indebted to him for much of the material that I will be including uh, in this lesson uh, this morning. The New Testament Christian understands restoration. First of all, we need to appreciate that the Bible has a great deal to say about New Testament restoration. And we turn to God's Word, we turn to God's Word to learn about the restoration of one soul who has departed from the faith, and we turn to God's Word also to learn about the restoration of many souls to New Testament Christianity by returning to the pattern of God's Word, the specific New Testament pattern. First of all, think with me for a few moments about the fall and the restoration of one precious soul. And indeed, when we say one precious soul, that is indeed the case. Every soul is precious to God. Luke 15, verse 11, reveals the emphasis on one soul. Because there we learn about the prodigal son, the lost boy, the prodigal, as we so often call him. But we also see a great emphasis to the father in this parable, Christ emphasizes the willingness of the father in the parable of the prodigal son to forgive and to rejoice when the lost son is found. And the same is true for the two parables that precede the parable of the prodigal son, the lost coin, and uh, are the lost sheep and then the lost coin. Rejoice with me is a phrase that we don't need to overlook in that chapter. Rejoice with me. The one who had lost but then found that which was lost says, Come and rejoice with me. 
And the me there is the Father. And so there's an emphasis on the rejoicing in heaven itself and from the Father himself over the restoration of one precious soul. But perhaps the most descriptive account of a fall and restoration involving one soul is found in Acts chapter 8 in reference to Simon the sorcerer. And you remember that Philip went down to Samaria uh, to preach the gospel down there. And in Acts 8 at verse 13, we read about this man who had deceived the people with his, uh, with his trickery for so long, but he heard the gospel, he believed it, and he was baptized. That's verse 13. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Simon was baptized. Now, there are some Calvinists who claim that Simon merely said he believed. And if you have something in your Bible that reads Simon said he believed, you need another Bible because it's not there. Uh, there's nothing there that says Simon said, not Simon says, but what the Lord, by inspiration, inspired Luke to write. Luke did not write that Simon said he believed. Luke wrote that he did, that he did believe, that he was baptized. And yet, you well know, if you're familiar with the account, that when he saw that the impartation of miraculous gifts was done through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he wanted that ability. He coveted that ability. And he fell back, to some extent, into his own old ways. Well, in Acts 8, 23, Peter, confronting him, said, For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. The King James here, that you are in the bond of iniquity. Well, again, there are those who want to add the word yet in that passage, and it's not there. I see that you are yet, or still, in other words, still in the bond of iniquity. Why do they put yet in there? Because they're trying to say that Simon never did really obey the truth. And that Peter was saying to him, you are still in the bond of iniquity. You never came out of the bond of iniquity. The passage does not say that. And that's not what Peter said. What we do know is that Simon became a Christian. Simon departed from the faith. And Peter told him, you are now in the bond of iniquity and the plan for the restoration in Acts 8.22 is the plan for the restoration of any precious soul who has obeyed the truth and leaves the truth. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. There's the pattern for the restoration of a fallen Christian. Repent and pray. But now think with me about the fall and restoration of many, of many. As Brother Matthew Martin accurately points out in his treatment of this subject in the lectureship, he said, quote, the possibility of entire congregations falling away is not just hypothetical, it is historical. And that's a very accurate statement. The possibility of entire congregations falling away is not just hypothetical, it's historical. In other words, tragically, it has happened 
time and again. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, about a falling away. And Paul also wrote to Timothy about a future time when Christians would depart from the faith. In 1 Timothy, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared by the hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. How did that departure about which Paul wrote, how did that begin? That departure began with organizational changes that deviated from God's pattern in the New Testament. Among the deviations from the New Testament organization of the congregation was the elevation of one man to become a ruling bishop. God's pattern, as we well know, I would hope we do, is that there be a plurality, there be a plurality of elders who are called bishops, presbyters, uh, shepherds, overseers. There are different designations for that one responsibility, but there is a plurality of, of elders. The first departure came with the elevation of one man, one man to become a ruling bishop. F.W. Maddox, in his book, The Eternal Kingdom, writes this, quote, influenced by Greek philosophy, Judaism, and paganism, the makeup of the congregations slowly became unrecognizable when compared to the apostolic pattern, end quote. Eventually, these individual bishops began to exert an influence beyond their own congregations and even beyond their own communities. They would establish other congregations and they would, they would place a presbytery of elders in charge of the local affairs of that congregation, but they themselves maintained overall control and rule. One thing led to another, as we say until those claiming to be Christians were indoctrinated thoroughly into this system of hierarchy and they began to refer to the Bishop of Rome as Pope or Father. And the Roman Catholic Church had tremendous influence for a long time. Finally, after the Renaissance of the 14th century, the Roman Catholic Church lost a lot of its influence and men began to become disillusioned with the corruption of the so-called mother church. And this led to what became known as the Reformation Movement. Notice I did not say the Restoration Movement, but the disillusionment gave rise to the Reformation, reforming the Reformation Movement. And Reformation leaders like Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin were involved in the Reformation, but their efforts fell short of a complete return to New Testament Christianity. Their efforts to reform the Catholic Church actually resulted in the formation of various denominations that grew out of the Reformation effort. I want to read a statement from Brother Matthew Martin's lecture, which I believe is very, very well stated. He wrote this, Consider the fact that various religious denominations 
all of which sprang individually from efforts to reform the Roman church, all yet exist in relative harmony with one another, despite the fact that they all teach different things, have different hierarchies, answer to different governing bodies, and hold to different creeds. Any unbiased individual can look at the state of, quote, denominational Christianity, unquote, and say it fails because there is something about it that is a self-contradiction. And the only way to accept denominationalism is to conclude that God does not care that his worshipers all worship him in fundamentally different ways. You can do that. He doesn't care. You've got to accept that in order to accept denominationalism. He goes on, one would have to blind himself to the simple fact that there is one Bible with one message from one divine source and as such is not open to interpretation. You've got to completely blind yourself to that to embrace denominationalism. I think that is well said and completely on point. The efforts of the reformers then were a failure from the biblical perspective. They failed. It would take a group of individuals hundreds of years later to bring about not a reformation of existing man-made institutions, but a restoration of the New Testament pattern. And that brings us to a brief discussion of the Restoration, about which you'll learn a lot more, the Lord willing, on September 14th. One of the earliest of the pioneers in regard to Restoration was a man by the name of James O'Kelly. He preached in Virginia before the Revolutionary War. He was first a member of the Episcopal denomination. He later became a Methodist, but withdrew from them on Christmas Eve in 1793 and formed a group called the Republican Methodists. The following summer, that group held a meeting in Virginia's Old Lebanon Church where a man by the name of Rice Haggard stood up, asked to be recognized, stood up. He held a Bible in his hand and he stated his desire for it to be the only creed book Christians should follow and said that it was a quote, sufficient rule of faith and practice. By it, we are told that the disciples were called Christians, and I move that henceforth and forever the followers of Christ be known as Christians, end quote. At the turn of the 19th century, a New England Baptist preacher named Abner Jones had become frustrated with an over-reliance on what he called sectarian names and human creeds. And so he established a congregation in Vermont which called themselves the Christian Church. Not long after that, another Baptist preacher named Elias Smith joined with Abner Jones and together they established several congregations in the New England area calling upon men to abandon denominationalism and restore the worship of God as outlined in the New Testament. Get rid of the creeds, get rid of the prayer brooks, get rid of everything that is man-made and get back to the simple teaching of the New Testament. Later in 1804, 
a Presbyterian preacher with ties to other denominational groups, Barton W. Stone, hosted a revival for the Presbyterian Church at Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And it was quite a revival. Area preachers from the Baptist and the Methodist assisted in the effort. And the great success of the meeting created a desire in stone for greater unity among the religious entities. He wanted to see these religious entities, the different ones, come together and be united. But Stone soon discovered that all the differences in doctrine made his plan dead on arrival. It was dead on arrival. But there was a handful of men along with Stone, who formed what was called the Springfield Presbytery at Springfield, Kentucky, and they began meeting regularly. Now, up to this point, the actions of men like O'Kelly and Haggard and Jones and Stones, as Brother Martin points out, seem to be more reform-minded, albeit albeit with a desire to take the Bible as a sole authority, but more reform-minded to this point. You have to keep in mind that the Restoration Movement didn't happen overnight. And these men didn't come away from everything in which they were involved that was man-made overnight. But there was a lot of courage involved in a lot of these men who made this appeal. Now, it's interesting that after the formation of the Springfield Presbytery, about nine months later, after they had formed it, the members of the Springfield Presbytery looked at it and said, in effect, wait a minute, we've just started another denomination here. We've just simply become another denominational type entity. And so they immediately disbanded the Springfield Presbytery. And in doing so, they did something rather unique. They wrote a document very famous document in the Restoration Movement called The Last Will and Testament of the Springfield Presbytery. And in that document, listen to this, they stated, among other things, their desire for that body, the Springfield Presbytery, to be dissolved into the body of Christ at large and that the, quote, Church of Christ, end quote, as they worded it, maintain autonomous congregations autonomous congregations. That's what the New Testament teaches, isn't it? The critics of these men responded, oh yes, and they called them uh, New Lights, Stoneites, after Barton W. Stone. But notice they didn't call them Campbellites because we haven't even talked about Campbell yet, have we? And it's interesting that so many people think the Church of Christ was founded by Alexander Campbell. And we've already talked about a number of men who were involved in the Restoration Movement. And Campbell, he hadn't even come to this country yet. But that brings us to the Campbells, Thomas and his son Alexander. In 1807, Three years after Barton Stone and his friends dissolved the Springfield Presbytery and attempted to restore themselves to the Church of Christ, Thomas Campbell landed in America. Campbell was a Presbyterian Irishman who settled in Pennsylvania and started preaching in Pittsburgh. And the more he studied, the more he preached only the Bible, 
The more he rejected the man-made elements the presbytery had made a part of its faith. And to no one's real surprise, he was accused by the presbytery of being a false teacher. And he soon left the Presbyterian church, preaching an undenominational Christianity. His purpose was not to, quote, repair the Presbyterian church or any other denomination or to form a new church. His whole purpose was to restore the kind of pure Christianity that the apostles taught in the first century. And, of course, the critics came out of the woodwork, as they had with Stone and his group. They came out of the woodwork, tried to accuse Campbell of being the leader of a new breed of, of Christianity. And once Alexander Campbell, Thomas's son, arrived in America, he discovered, upon comparing notes, if you will, with his father, from whom he had been away for some time, that they were thinking along the very same lines. And they rejoiced that they were. Like his father, Alexander never had as his goal the formation of a new religious group. Rather, he said, quote, let us return to the original church as it is developed and portrayed in Scripture. Let us return to the original church as it is developed and portrayed where? In Scripture. And there were many other preachers in the 19th century who left their organized religions and began preaching the primitive gospel of Jesus Christ. And through word of mouth, now notice this, through word of mouth and chance meetings and debates and periodicals, the efforts of different men which began independent of each other with no knowledge on the part of one about what was happening on the part of another. They soon became known to one another, providing encouragement to their efforts. What was the unifying factor? The New Testament and their desire to return to it. And then the churches of Christ the church of our Lord, the church of Christ, that is the pre-denominational church to which these men were trying to return. The church of Christ became one of the fastest growing religious bodies in America, not as a new denomination, but as undenominational congregations, pre-denominational, if you will, that were made up of people who revered the Bible as their only guide and who preached and taught the New Testament pattern. And we have to believe that that restoration plea will still resonate in the hearts of at least some people today who may be bewildered and discouraged by what they see in the inconsistency that Matthew Martin pointed out. Any unbiased individual can look at the state of, quote, denominational Christianity and say it fails because there's something about it that is a self-contradiction. Now, we will grant that America today is not the America of the 19th century, nor is it the America in which men like N.B. Hardiman and Guy N. Woods preached 
as they and others carried on the work of, of the pioneer era restorers like Stone and Campbell and others. In fact, as Brother Matthew Martin points out in his lecture, quote, many anti-Christian crusaders strive to see the era of Hardeman filling huge auditoriums dead and buried. They want that era dead and buried. When N.B. Hardeman filled the Ryman Auditorium, service after service after service, they want that dead. And while it is not dead, it is in its death throes in many places. And so it's not the America, even of the Hardeman and Guy and Woods days. And they want to see that era of huge auditoriums being filled, dead and buried. And today, religion in general as Brother Martin goes on, is at best mocked and at worst outlawed piece by piece, not only abroad, but also here in the free nation of America. And even among those who claim to be religious, what is the dominant philosophy among those who claim to be religious? It is pluralism. It is the mantra, I'm okay, you're okay. People, people scoff at the idea of a pattern and to contend for such, for us to continue the restoration plea and to contend for return to the New Testament pattern makes us judgmental, makes us extremely impolite, makes us totally intolerant in the minds of many. So, does that suggest that the idea of a restoration movement is out of date? that it needs to be abandoned, that it is antiquated? No, no indeed. The outlook may be discouraging, if not dismal at times in certain places, but the seed is still the word of God. And there will always be some fertile soil, that is, hearts that are receptive to the pure gospel. And we must believe there are still those who, to quote Campbell, quote, want the old gospel back and sustained by the ancient order of things, end quote. As our brother Matthew Martin reminds us, quote, it is to those, that is the ones we've just described in Campbell's quote, it is to those that the members of Christ's church preach. To them is extended the invitation to follow the pattern given by God to repent of the sins that keep them separated from him and in full obedience to his commands be restored to a proper relationship with him, separate and removed from all the man-made barriers in the form of man-made religious organizations. And he says, every time a gospel-pricked heart obeys the truth, the New Testament church is restored in him and he is restored in it. That's why the restoration plea must be maintained and we must have faith that to some at least it will resonate in an exciting way as they objectively observe the inconsistent and intolerable to God, that is, division that exists 
in the religious world today. And as they see that and are bewildered by it and caused hopefully to search for something better, we must be there to provide the answer. Not only here or when they come, but to go out and to sow the seed wherever they are, as far and wide as possible, and to help them to hopefully see that, yes, denominationalism is an outgrowth of an apostate church, and therefore it in itself is apostasy from that which we must return to if we are going to be pleasing to God. And thanks be to God, we have that pattern still with us today so that we can know that we are following it and thereby know that we're pleasing the God of heaven and his only begotten son who shed his blood to purchase the church we read about here, the church that exists in this place and in so many other places around the world. What about you? Have you responded to the restoration plea? Does it excite you? If you have responded to it, are you as excited about it as you were the day you obeyed the gospel? Hopefully so, hopefully more so. And more determined than ever. Despite my, what might be a waning interest level in, in this city and in many other cities, still excited about sowing the seed of the kingdom and looking for that fertile soil, those receptive hearts who will respond favorably to a plea to simply come back to the Bible, specifically to the New Testament, follow its pattern, speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where it is silent, do Bible things in Bible ways and call Bible things by Bible names. In faith, unity. In opinion, tolerance, liberty and in all things, love. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Act upon that belief by repenting of your sins, confessing Jesus to be the Christ, and then be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Where do I get that? Right here. That's the New Testament plea. That's the New Testament plan for becoming a Christian. Nothing more, nothing less and being added to the pre-denominational church that is described beautifully and completely upon the pages of the New Testament. Believe that I am he or die in your sins, John 8, 24. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. Confess me and I'll confess you, Matthew 10, 32. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. Be faithful unto death thereafter, and I'll give you the crown of life, Revelation 2, 10. That's God's plan to get you from earth to heaven. And it's depicted here. And thanks be to God, there were courageous men who understood and appreciated the need to return to it. And thanks be to God, there are still those who are determined to perpetuate the pattern that God has revealed in his word. You can be a part of that by becoming a child of his in the manner we've just prescribed. And if you need to come home to your first love and back to the pattern from which you have departed in repentance and prayer as Simon the sorcerer had to do we plead with you to come home in that way as we stand and sing to encourage you.